Hey guys, my name is Arjun and welcome to Counting Change, the show that explores the dynamic intersection of community finance and tech innovation. I am a co-founder for Scent. We are a new fintech platform that's hoping to bring inclusion into the community bank and the credit union world. And I'm Rachel, one of the first designers at Scent who is part of the Scottish branch. I am passionate about designing great products and making lives easier. I'm excited to be able to part of a company from growing from the ground up. Today, we are talking about culture and innovation within the fintech space. We're really excited to be joined by Kirk Kordaleski. He has done everything and anything in the credit union space. And in the fintech space, he was a, he's a former uh, CEO and president of Beth Page Credit Union. And now he currently works at Park Street Partners. He is also an ascent advisor, so we chat with him a lot, and we're we're so excited to have him have him on the show. I'm gonna get started, kind of just going to some questions, if that's all right. Yeah, that sounds great. Before you start off with um, questions, though, Arjun, I have a question for Kirk, which is probably more important than any interesting talk we're going to talk about today about fintech and culture. Is Kirk, how do you make a cup of tea? Do you put like the milk in first, the milk in second, use a microwave, a hob? So milk in second, but do use the microwave to heat up the water. I do not understand you Americans <laughs> using the microwave for your tea. It's not done. I mean, you were winning me with the milk in second, but a microwave? I, I understand. I understand. I feel a little guilty about it myself, but that's what we do. You know what, Kirk? We'll forgive you. We'll forgive you Thank today. You. I expect no. better in the future. <laughs> Uh, just just really quickly on that point. Have you guys met people who put milk in before they put the tea or the cereal? I find uh, that yes. it's the most psychotic thing in the world. If you put your never. milk in before the cereal, you've never met someone? No. I, I've met a few people. I mean, they claim it's that they know how much milk they have. Because obviously, if you put in milk on top of things, then you, you have to just judge it, whereas they can exactly tell. But I agree. I agree. I, I think it's wrong also. Yeah. Don't know if we're gonna. If anyone listens to this and you are that person, <laughs> I'm sorry. But. Yeah, that's just... <laughs> all right. Well, to dive a little deep into this and get get started, Kirk, can you provide overview of, like what you do and just your quick background, kind of how you got involved in the credit union space itself? Yeah, I have now a almost 45 year story revolves around being in credit unions. But the impetus, the start of that was very innocent. It was, I was dating somebody in college and their mother worked at a small credit union at the World Bank International Monetary Fund, IMF. And it was tiny. The credit union was $20 million, $25 million in assets. And I had this amazing opportunity where I just filled in to positions. And if the IMF and the World Bank are very similar to the UN, 70% of the Employment base are foreign nationals recruited from the best universities in the world. And they had home leave. So every two years, the folks would leave and go back to England or India or Scotland or Poland, wherever they may have had their homeland. And almost all the employees of the credit union were family members of, of the bank fund staff. So they would go and I would just fill in these different positions. So I had this unique opportunity to learn the business from from the ground up very quickly. And then a second thing happened. I, I uh, and this really leads to what I, to do, what I do today. The credit union started to grow. They brought in a, a CEO who was a banker and I had the opportunity to learn 
both from the banking perspective and from the credit union model. And he started an aggressive growth. That $20 million credit union is now $6 billion in assets. And uh, as they added each new product and, and service, I was the one that helped design it. And I was the only one that wasn't afraid of computers. So I, uh, they gave me the technology to implement and to do. And then that served me very well. I, there was a time going back down to the early eighties where technology was just starting to blossom. PCs were, you know, and all the, the land, local area networks and all the pieces were coming in. And, and I happened to be at the right place at the right spot, grew up in that, in that organization as it expanded. And then got recruited to be a number two at a media, at a regular, at a larger credit union, Beth Page at the time. We were 50th largest in the country. And then we grew that, that credit union to the 17th, 16th, 17th oh, largest wow. in the country, doubling our size every five years over a period of time. And so we took the model in a, in a different way, in a different direction that probably only a handful of credit unions had done up till then. Now it has become the norm of a community charter, uh, a retail financial institution that resembles community banking in, in all ways. But at the time, in the early 90s, and then when I took over CEO in 2000, that was not the norm. The norm was when you'd see a traditional credit union serving one employment base or a couple employment bases. So I grew up from there, retired then from Beth Page after 15 years as CEO. And started up a couple of businesses, uh, first being a marketplace lender uh, that was uh, mimic in the credit union space, Lending Club and Prosper. While that did not get funded, we spent a year on that project and that really enabled me to uh, better understand fintech space, better understand the tools that were out there in the world. In my previous life at, at Beth Page, we had started up a technology company and I, that I'd been chairman of. So technology kind of ran through this entire spectrum of, of my experiences, but I uh, worked on the marketplace lender, bet several people that, that helped me grow businesses. And then I led a consulting practice that did digital and data. So that added on to that experience and, and we, that business grew very well. That was well-timed. And then I was recruited to what I do now. And I do three things today. I, about 70% of my time is spent at Park Street Partners, which is a firm that provides executive benefits. So I work with CEOs and boards extensively in helping them keep their most important asset, their leadership team, retain those talents. And I hope that I help in my the latter part of my career, helping executives get the compensation I think they deserve for what I believe in, in banking is the hardest job in retail banking. It's running a credit union. We can go into that why at some point if you'd like. And then I partner with fintechs and and help them understand the credit union space because it's very different. And I know that's a something we'll probably touch on later as well. And then I mentor some 30, 35 people at any given time to as they are preparing to be a CEO. That part of the business is I don't charge for. I, I was helping some people out. Anybody on the podcast, listening podcast that would like to become a CEO of credit union? And wants to talk, I'd be glad to help them as well. I love that. That is, I have so many questions going to so many things. First thing I want to ask is like, when you first said, Hey, I want to put technology into a credit union. How did people react to that? Were like, Oh God, are you crazy? What do you, what do you, and how do you convince someone to say yes? Like just an organization to say, yeah, this is, you know, an out there idea, but it, it is so pertinent for our growth to, to implement. How, how'd you get someone to, to get along with you? 
I think you've probably noticed some of this already, that credit unions are predisposed to do whatever is in the best interest of their members. And often technology is in the best interest of their members. And so if you look back historically, you know, because I've been around for so long, I get to do this. But if in that 1980s timeframe, when uh, online real-time systems, many computers started coming out with, with affordable and capable, credit unions were the first to adapt those. Banks still had all these disparate systems. They had a checking core and a savings core, and, a, and, and but credit unions brought it together in this experience that had a unified account. Later on, that became online real-time ATMs and audio response systems, and then the first real users of internet home banking. And so the trend to adapt technologies for use because members demand it. And, so, and we're seeing it today with the, with fintechs, right? The, the absorption of fintechs, you know, you would, you would know better than I about how well community banks are, are moving in the direction of partnerships with you and with other firms. My sense is that credit unions are, are quicker to do those things and, you know, continue to do it. So the question about how Easy it was a story. It was as soon as I connected it to service rather than technology and connected it to how we could be effective at, at providing that level of service and that there was demand in the marketplace for it, that it, that it was a fairly smooth road. When it was for technology, for technology's sake, you know, the stuff to keep the lights yeah. on, you know, update the yeah. core systems, this or that, that's a much harder sell. And that particularly during the eighties and nineties, when none of the executives were really technology, had had technology experience. Now, you know, most of the CEOs that are coming in, all the new transition that's occurring because of retirements of my age group, they have a, a background and comfort level with technology. That wasn't true in the 80s. Now, I, I completely agree with you. I think even just for us, we're, we're obviously not a credit union, but even for us, there is an ethos of why we hire. So very quick thing. My mom is the biggest believer in Simon Sinek and like start with why, right? And so I think Rachel, you know this, the only question I get to ask in our interview process, because there are people way smarter than me who, who usually vet everyone before they, they come to me is like, why do you want to join? There has to be an inherent reason because we have a mission, like credit have a mission, like we have to have a mission of like why we started this and why we want to do it. And that's why it's like really fascinating and cool to work with credit unions because you have had the similar goal. How do you help people? And if you can do that through tech, that's amazing. And if you can do that through tech, credit union, that's you know even better. And what you find, to your point, is that the, the fintechs that are aligned with that, right? You know, there, there is an impetus within each of the firms to make money and to get to big enough and of course. To, to grow it and you yeah. know whatever that that next event, financial event is, everyone's aware of. But those initial values, how you partner with credit unions are essential because that's where the trust comes and that's where you can speed up the pilots and you can move the, the market yeah. forward. The firms that come in that have great technology, but don't align on the values, you know, they get very frustrated with the pace of credit union decision-making and because it's, it's not an understanding of the same driving factors. It's not an income. Yeah. If you go to a credit union and say, Oh, we're going to, we're going to lower your costs and increase your income. They're interested, but that isn't motivational for them to move their project forward. If you tell them that we're going to be much more effective with your members, we're going to be able to provide more lending to them, 
we're going to change the way that they interact with you so that they, they love your service. Now you've got their ears and more importantly, you've got their priority on a project. A hundred percent. It's also like as a fintech, you're not looking for, you're not just looking for a customer, you're looking for a partner, right? At the end of the day, right. until you become an established company, each of your customers help you as much as you help your customers. And I think that's so critical for, that's so something we're, we're learning, but it's such a, Thing for us to have is like we partner rather than, than rather than someone buys from us, you partner with them on on this journey. And and how do you, it would, you know it's so essential that works early on because you need the first three or four clients, right? You know, yeah. you build that momentum. You can't do that without without those first few folks trusting. And by the sounds of it, Kirk, you've had quite a lot of accomplishments throughout your career. Listening to your background, do you have anything in particular that you would say like you're most proud about? During your time at Bethpage, because that was quite a jump from having twenty, what was that, twenty million in assets up to, what was that final figure, three billion, six so billion? It, yeah. So at Bethpage, when I became, when I got there, we were two hundred and fifty million. So this was a decade later, and we grew it to six billion. So that you know that's quite a run. And uh, CEO, it was nine nine hundred fifty million to six billion. Uh, wow. So that is indeed, I, I think, the two things that I'm proudest of at Bethpage and and with uh, and throughout my credit union career. Is that we really looked at how to change the model for how credit unions participate in the marketplace. So we, we looked at, we became, and there are a lot of reasons why this occurred. Some of it was just out of fear and would, would we remain viable in the marketplace? But we became a community institution and, and really we were the first ones granted two significant charters. One was all of Long Island as a community that had never been done before in credit unions. They'd never had more than one county allowed. And two, we now have a, Beth Page now has a national charter. The reasons why that, but we expanded the, the idea of what credit unions could be to incorporate entire large communities and that we could compete in those large communities at the end of that run. Beth Page was second only to Chase in brand awareness on Long Island. And you, you know, oh, wow. that's Bank of America, that's City, that's some major institutions we were, over to, we were able to overcome. So how do you do that then became, you know, is, is really the most important part of that story. And we, we looked at the model and understood that without a driving force, what we called a center of gravity, there was no way to keep the organization aligned, learning and change. To the degree that the competitive world was doing that, the banking world and, and credit card companies, that sort of thing, because they were, they always had a center of gravity on financial performance. So they always knew how to make decisions throughout the organization. They knew that they had to change to evolve to the marketplace and to compete. We didn't have that member service. Those kinds of things can drive you so far. But they don't create urgency. They don't create a learning culture. They don't create a drive to change. So we cemented the idea within the organization that doubling our size every five years was our essential center of gravity. So it was who we were going to be, that we were going to be growth. For credit unions for many decades, up to some smaller credit unions to this day, they will say growth for growth's sake is wrong. Growth for growth's sake is essential because it matters about learning and change and, and other pieces. So that creation of that, thinking about the model in a different way, and there were three or four other credit unions who were doing it. It wasn't exclusively. And, and then creating this center of gravity that created performance and then aligning the entire organization along 
those lines uh, using uh, scenario planning and some other tools was really what, what I'm proud of because the organization was able to not only sustain itself in growth, just become bigger, but we had the best pricing in the marketplace on uh, five products against all 10 banks every day. Oh, wow. And we had the number two rated service by GD, JD Powers in the nation on the service quality to our members. So you, you take those two attributes, waiting on price and service, you have a pretty strong brand. Exactly. That's Very that sounds impressive. Obviously, like now, if you're sitting in the shoes of a CEO for credit union, right, with everything happening on the macroeconomic stage with technology, with kind of the current environment, what is, and obviously you work with 30 CEOs, what is keeping everyone up at night? What is like, yeah. wow. There is both short-term and long-term that are keeping them up at night. Short-term has been the financial disruption to the marketplace caused by, you know, the by the liquidity that flowed in in, in buckets during COVID and has flown out just as quickly with five and a hundred and 525 basis points increase in, in interest rates. So there are some 60 to 80%, two thirds to more than three quarters of credit unions that are financially, were financially disrupted in 23. Not out of business, not losing money, nothing extreme, but a dramatic change from the previous 12, 13 years of financial returns to a much lower return in 23. And that was a, that kept everybody up. Liquidity challenges, cost of funds, inflation, delinquency, and the new regulation on delinquency and allowance for loan loss. Cecil, all of that scared the heck out of people. They all absorbed it. They're coming out of it. The last half of this year, the, the 24, they're going to be fine. But it was, that kept everybody up at night because anytime you have that level of change in the financial marketplace, it disrupts the strategy. It disrupts investments in fintechs. It disrupts hiring. You know, it just changes all of those pieces. So that, that is, but that's passing through. The interest rates appear even with the numbers for the last few days, like they've topped out. They may not come yeah. down as quickly as people like, but be, uh, when you have any business, when you have, when the financial marketplace is stable, you know how to plan. You know how to make decisions. You start getting comfortable with those. And now that we're in 24 and a new budget, new strategy plan, people are comfortable and they're coming back to invest in fintechs. You see a couple funds within the credit union space growing aggressively right now. So that is passing, but that was the immediate thing on people's minds. The long-term thing on people's minds, it keeps them up. How do you compete in a marketplace today that has become a revamped retail banking model, a digital and data-driven? Data, really both aspects of it, because they, they, you can't separate the two, but it, you know, this digital transformation that is occurring in how people interact with the businesses and, you know, they're all the, all the old school financial institutions, including credit unions, have this huge investment in branches and, and brick and mortar, how to transition those and really how to transition the culture within them. Because the culture is just as antiquated or as antiquated is not a great word, is cemented to that past as is the cost of everything. So now it's about how do you change that culture to absorb what is the reality of service in the world and using digital data and nothing more important 
than how to use the new tools around data for decision making in, in chat GPT type of, of worlds uh, to lending decisions, to operational efficiency, to product decisions, some of the work that, that we do at, at Ascend, right? So it's, it is, it is that how to change that organization to effectively use those tools to be up to date and compete with the Amazons and the bank and B of A's and, and chases of the world. And, and equally important and often forgotten beyond the strategy is how to change the culture to actually do it. You see this so much in, in the lending cultures because there's so many great tools already available to change how lending is going. And yet it is so slow to transition bad credit unions to actually use all those tools to effectively service and decide on, on loans. Why do you think there is that barrier or that, or that hesitancy to shift that culture? And how, how would you go about if you, if you would, like, how would you, what do you think are the best avenues to actually change that culture? Yeah. So the reason why it's so difficult to attend, and this is true of community banks and maybe all banking, is that the lending culture, we're specifically talking about the lending side right now, the lending culture has been the breadwinners, right? They're the heroes of the organization. And so they've made money a certain way, right? They've done loans a certain way. That is hard to change because that's so much of the income safe. So disrupting that is, you know, there is a, there is a friction there because of previous and past success from past successes. So that's human nature kind of thing. And, and those cultures are risk adverse at these institutions. So now you have this, this other aspect of, of human nature is even though hardly anyone is held to task for a poor lending choice, because if you're going to make lending decisions, some of them aren't going to work out. There is still this culture of being conservative, being risk adverse, and even more so at community institutions and credit unions than at bigger banks. Lack of profit motive plays a role in that too. So you have all of these aspects of the personality of the culture that, you know, kind of push back against any, any type of change. How do you overcome it? I think that's the key, right? Because that's just all of those things are, are natural consequences of long term and successful businesses. I, I think you have to acknowledge it. I think most people probably have done that. Then you have to create something that motivates that level of change, the awareness of it, the open-mindedness of it, the willingness to change. That's why we we cemented into the, the business model the doubling of our assets every five years at Beth Page. We had to create an environment where everyone was going to be open-minded, that they were going to learn first and be open-minded second. Credit that isn't the solution for a lot of credit unions to double their size or or be open to that. But they have to find something that is going to continuously motivate it. Now, the good news for the entire industry is this other aspect we talked about a moment ago, this dramatic change in leadership. So the new CEOs and the new C-level teams really want to produce. And they are much more accustomed to these tools. So they're going to, they're going to push it forward even without this center of gravity. But they're going to need something to motivate that staff. It can be a leadership style. It can be very strong goals that create the environment that makes people change, but it has to be an acceptance that that's going to be hard to change and that they're going to have to fight through it. Cultural changes take two to three years. They're not overnight. Yeah, 100%. Do you think like, and this goes into kind of like, you think competition from 
the neobanks, the fintechs that are competing for the same end user plays a part in that. And how is that like, as you said, as there's this new transition of young CEOs coming in and kind of the change happening, right? What is on their roadmap for 24? Is it like, oh, we have to type up for the next 50 years. We need to get ready because of competition from the outside. Or is it kind of, are they taking the same growth mindset you took at Bethpage? I think that most of the newer CEOs are taking the growth mindset. They are running into walls. So, and those walls are both the board and the internal culture. But the good news on both of those is that they're both aging out as well. They're both changing. So board members are like 20 years my senior for the most part. So there, there's a natural end to their, their yeah. careers. And the C teams are changing partly because of the new CEOs coming in and changing team members, partly because they're also baby boomers. So you, you have both of those walls are, are coming down, but they have a tough fight in, in front of them because the business has been done a certain way for such a long time. So I, I think their motivation, though, is that they want to do something great. And they're coming in to uh, with an awareness of digital and data and the, and the knowledge that they know in their circle, in their children's circle, in their however they look at the world view, is that digital and data are the essential ingredients. And so they're, they're going to make it happen. It will be interesting to watch all the new executives that are in place have how quickly they make those changes. We'll see. You know, it's, they are, it's unlike for-profit institutions where they typically, where a CEO typically comes in and brings in their own team and that change, it, it typically takes a couple of years at a credit union for that transition to occur. So Kirk, like how important is it to hire and retain like the correct amount of talent to accomplish these roadmap things? And like, how can a credit union retain the top talent compared to the amount of like what encourages people to come to a credit union rather than going to one of these neo banks yeah. or banking yeah. institutions? Like as you create this cultural change, how do you yeah. you can talk about it in the most in the C level sense, but also just, you know, your underwriters, how do you how do you make them and if if you know if a credit union is our engineers, right? I you talk to banks and credit unions and one of the biggest problems is like, you know, if, and this is just our perspective. So it's like if a fintech is trying to sell into a credit union or a community bank. If you require engineers on staff, it's very hard for institutions to retain engineers because Meta is going to come in, Google is going to pay, come in and pay some absurd salary and half yes. the engineers go up there. Right? So how do you, how do you retain people? Yeah. So I, I'm going to start from the, the top down yeah. because I think it has to come from that yeah. direction. So at the first point, and Rachel, in, in your question, I, I think that how to compete for talent today at the very top levels and then retain that talent. Particularly when you've invested in it, you know, the, the, the learning experiences. So at Beth Page, as an example, we paid for the college degree for anybody for any degree. The reason why wow. we wanted the smartest possible people, even if we had, and our deal with them, it wasn't a handshake deal. It wasn't a contract. It was that they would work for us for three years. So in anything past three years, great for us and great for them if they liked it there. My point is that. If you're investing in people to that degree, you want to retain them. You want to create an environment that is both profitable for them and interesting for them. So this question of how you retain top talent is a matter of understanding the marketplace. Credit unions don't have stock options. So that's a big deal for the, for the top. 
So there is a different compensation structure that has to go in place. So how you look at base and annual incentive, how you look at a retentive piece, which is five or seven year long-term incentives. And then what we do in my 70% of my business is creating retirement plans and mimic stock options called supplemental executive retirement for SERPs are become the essential tools because that long-term retentive piece, how much money you're going to make, how you're going to win the financial game of life, how you're going to become reasonably wealthy from this leadership role, then becomes the anchor to the organization. So you have to put in all these tools. You have to manage those tools so they're performance-oriented. So each one is kind of unique to the executive. And it's that type of compensation philosophy, strategy that matches and aligns with the corporate strategy and financial performance. And connecting all those pieces is what creates a equal compensation program for those of the for-profit world and retains that talent that you invested in. As you move down the organization, I think it then becomes a matter of, of setting goals, setting goals that people are, the entire team is rewarded for performance. Once again, I'll give you the example of Beth Page. Apologize for continuing to use that, but. What we did at Beth Page was that every person in the organization was part of a balanced scorecard and that had up to a month's bonus each year if we reached our performance goals. So you have uh, to include everybody within the change matrix. You have to provide this, the tools that they can be brought in. We created an internal university where you didn't have to go off campus to get your college degree and your master's degree. We paid for the degrees. We put in the bonus program. We gave that everybody the tools to change and align and then held them accountable to it, right? So you have to do the, the hard part as well. You have to rate people. You have to grade them. You have to you set the high goals and then you have to continue to manage to that and keep accountable. Those things aren't so easy for not-for-profits or cooperative structures. Because those are much more about being a business than they are about being a classic not-for-profit. And many of the board members aren't really accustomed to those that environment. So all of that takes strategy, a definition of strategy, a definition of success, and then all these alignment pieces to come back to. And that works. It is, those are things, right? The, every a great management book is talked about forever. These are not new ideas. They are differently applied sometimes in credit unions. Yeah, but implementing those ideas is, I think, still so challenging. Like theory is great, but if you implement and execute it, it's so hard. And you guys obviously did it so well at Beth Page. So that's, that's amazing. I know we're wrapping up on time, but I would love to keep talking to you. So I will mostly call you a bunch in the next few weeks to chat with you about some of the stuff. But the last question I had was like, what advice would you give to someone who is an executive entering into the credit union space right now? Would be like for, for 2024, for, for onwards, what, what advice would you give them? Yeah. So I, I think the, the primary, the primary thing that I would say to anybody is that understanding how much the model is changing in front of us right now. Not only is it the retail banking model, but we're, we're in this fifth generation in my terms of credit unions. The credit union model has changed that much over this last 85 years in existence. The banking model, the retail banking model in total is changing. And the credit union itself 
the the ability because if you think about what Koreans can do now, they have regional and national charters. They have yeah. secondary capital options. They've got reach through digital to multiple marketplaces and to build brand. They have financial instruments of derivatives and raising of capital, secondary capital, that they've never had before. So all of these pieces are a new model. So look at it in terms of the new opportunities, not the past way we've done things, even though that has been very successful for credit unions in in many ways. I mean, now credit union marketplace is $2.2 trillion, continues to grow, you know, has 150 million members, half the population of Amnery. But the future is about taking this new world and jumping at it, going at it quickly and absorbing it from this member service perspective that we talked about from the, at the beginning and understanding that that's what the market wants. And if we're first to, a, to move towards it, we'll win our market share. And I believe credit unions will dominate retail banking space going forward. They have a price advantage, not paying taxes and not having outside stockholders. And they have a service advantage by being completely aligned with what their members want to do. I think the ethos thing plays, it plays such a massive impact in, in everything from why a customer buys something, but also how you, how you build your organization or how you retain people. I think that's one thing for us is if you have a good why, people just tend to come to you and work for you and, and obviously be your customers. I'll stop talking. Rachel's got a few very quick, five more important questions before, before we let you go. This is a little segment that we like to nickname Risk It for a Biscuit. Do you know what a wild haggis looks like? I do not. (laughs) A wild haggis is known for being very wiry, living in the highlands up north. And it's, they're like, not you don't see them very often, but they're meant to have one leg slightly bigger than the other one for climbing up the mountains. Okay. Yeah. Just because we're from Scotland, so we like a wee bit of uh, Scottish Scottish bits in there. Do you have a favorite Scotch or whiskey? I do not. And the reason why is I gave up drinking many years ago. So you you have someone that is that no longer partakes. If I was still drinking, <laughs> it wouldn't be a Scot. I'm sorry to say, it wouldn't be a Scotch or a whiskey. It would be from my Southern roots. A bourbon. All right. I mean, as I have to say, I've gotten really into Edinburgh gin. So if anyone ever comes to Scotland, um, Edinburgh raspberry liqueur gin. It's like my new drink of choice. I will recommend that to my wife. Yeah, it's very nice. (laughs) Very sweet. Do you believe in the Loch Ness Monster? To the end of day, I don't believe in any of that stuff. I'm sorry. The Loch Ness Monster, ghosts, that all that stuff is, you know, it is, I'm, I'm just not that that romantic or insightful. If it's not in front of me, I don't believe it. It's no need to apologize. I'm not sure I believe in Nessie either. <laughs> um, but you know what? It brings, brings a good tourist business to Scotland. So uh, not sure if that's, if I'm even allowed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> do you have, like you say, you're not really, don't really believe in that. Do you have any myths out there that you would like to debunk or wish people could like? There are many myths, I guess. Here on, on uh, in New York and Long Island, you know, there's this. Uh, it, it's kind of the myth of of us being in, in our own little worlds, right? And and it's so untrue. It, it is now New York City, where Arjun lives. Uh, you know, is is uh, not only world class but certainly dynamic. But you live out in the suburbs, 
it's so different than being at that World Bank IMF experience that I had where, where it was so wonderfully diverse. The suburbs, you know, have this, the idea of being sort of the perfect place to be. And, and I don't find it, I find it very different, right? I find it very straight laced and very kind of unopen minded. And so I don't know if that's a myth or just an application of, of our culture, but, but particularly Long Island is, is a kind of a weird place. But, you know, that's why I'm going to spend half my time out in California. So there you go. Where the sun <laughs> is. Very yeah. last one. What football do you consider to be the real football? Oh, well, that's easy for me. You know, and, and well, it, it is clearly American football, given the Super Bowl that was just this weekend. And I have a undying and absolutely foolish love of what is now called the Washington Commanders. Uh, used to be <laughs> the obnoxious name of the Washington Red, Redskins. But I grew up in D.C. watching that team and, and having lived 30 years in New York and still having season tickets to a team that hasn't had a winning record in 20 of their <laughs> 30 years. I am absurdly fanatic about it. Okay. Good. I'm from Glasgow, so I'm not allowed to, to pass comment. <laughs> it's dangerous to do so. Awesome. But that's great. All righty. Thank write, you so I, much. I apologize. You. No, no, so this is perfect. So great talking to you. Thank you for giving me the time. Thank you Thank so you, much, Kirk. Thank you, Kirk. It was very nice to meet you. All the best. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.